0: Course is Pauline, Poles and Jews in 2018 trying to be friends but prevented by different versions of a common history. And tonight's the third lecture entitled uh, Deuteronomy 28 29 54 The Poles and Jews Under Tsarist Rule. So let's get right into it because it's always there's a fair amount to cover. Uh, as the title suggests, let's go to the first one. Yeah, the title suggests, if you look in Book of Dvarim in the Tochachab, in the curses, it says that God will bring upon you a a nation from far away. From the ends of the earth, like the eagle swooping down, whose language you don't understand. A, heart, a fierce and heartless nation, no respect for the young and a pity for the old. Its Armies will devour your livestock and crops, be destroyed, they'll leave you no grain, wine, oil, calves, and you'll starve to death. In other words, Russia. This is what happened to Poland and to the Jews, not like Hitler. One anything nothing like that at all, but compared to the Poland that was yesterday, that's how they experienced it. For 120 years, and I'm picking up where I left off last time, the Poles found themselves without a state, without a real state, subject to Prussia, Austria, and above all Russia. So the country of Poland underwent a national vivisection. Okay, uh, this was Poland, and in the different uh, divisions. This was given to this, this was given by the time it's all over, after the Congress of Vienna, we'll see in a minute, Austria gets this, Prussia gets this, and and Russia gets everything else. So the country was literally divided up among its neighbors. And the same was for the Jews. Um, Now, since each state was different, Prussia is different than Austria, which is different than Russia, we have three narratives. Three Polish narratives, how the Poles experienced 120 years under Russia, and had he did under Prussia, under the Germans, and under the Austrians. And the Jews also had the Jews experience the 120 years under the Russians, the next 120 years under the Austrians, the next 120 years under the Prussians. Because uh, for both sides, as I've tried to point out here, the good old kingdom of Poland of Yestir, with all its mishagash and all its freedom uh, was gone. Okay, The chaos and the relative freedom. So I'm going to start right now with Prussia very quickly. Because uh, that's the smallest of Prussians. Now, Prussia is a country where Berlin is. That's Berlin's the capital of Prussia. Later on, Prussia took over and became the leading state of Germany. Tom Tombo is a separate country. If you look in the original partitions of Poland that I talked about last time, 1772, 1793, and 1795, in other words, in, in the 1700s when they did the original business, Prussia took a big helik. Here, I mean, they, you know, they, I want to point out Warsaw became a provincial city of Prussia. So they took the old central Poland. OK, so that's crazy. Um, and what it means is, here there are two pictures of the same thing. This is all central Poland that now has belonged to the kingdom of Prussia, whose headquarters in Berlin. Like, that doesn't even make any sense, right? And the Prussians could only have a policy of trying to make all these Poles, millions of them, become Prussians, become Germans. How does that work? You swallow too big of a hornet's nest, you see? Now, the story gets more complicated or interesting because look what I have over here. This is Prussian Poland for 12 years, from 1795 to 1807. Last month or so, we talked about the French Revolution, Napoleon. One of the things Napoleon did in 1807, let's go to the next slide, 1806, was he destroyed Prussia. This the Battle of Jena in Auerstadt, where the Prussian army was shattered. And so one of the things Napoleon did after he busted Prussia was he said, you're not keeping all that territory, right? Not because he loved Poland, because Napoleon wasn't built that way, but uh, you know, you'll see in a minute. But uh, because he wanted Pr- Prussia not to be so so powerful, so what did he do? Let's go to the next line. He cut away the old part that uh, that they had had. No, he took all this away from Prussia, and a little bit later from Austria, and he made this into a, like a separate shtickle, small Polish state, because he wanted Prussia over here to be weak, or narrower, skinnier. In famous legend, which is. Half legend, half true. He did it because he fell in love with a Polish girlfriend. This is Countess Wolowska. Oh my goodness! How many movies in Hollywood have been made since Charles Boyer? You know, <laughs> I'm serious. Of Countess Walevska, uh, where she threw herself at Napoleon's feet. I'll use, I'll be euphemistic, and uh, and what he called and uh, He had a child by her, you know? and uh, you know she said, "Do this for Poland and all the rest of it." I'm I'm serious, but really. He, like I said before, he wasn't built that way. Poland was a hard, real, politic kind of person. It wasn't a plus of his, it was a minus. But that's who he was. Nevertheless, what Napoleon did was he created from the Prussian territory, and later a little bit more, a mini Poland, what he called the Grand Duke of Warsaw, the Grand Duchy of Warsaw. And the idea was, this will be what's left there Poland, all the other stuff, Russia will keep, Austria will keep, eh. but this at least will be, how should I put it, a partial It won't be that there's zero Poland out there. Because the truth of the matter is, it was an outrage. You see what I'm saying? People didn't feel bad if small nationalities are snuffed out. People did not feel bad if disgusting nationalities, like the Jews, are snuffed out. But people in Europe felt bad if honorable and historic nationalities, like Poles, like Poland, is snuffed out. I mean, after all, it was a rape, like we did last time. They just did it. and so. They wanted this, it was a feeling in general as part of the PC that some kind of Poland should come back. Doesn't necessarily have to be what it was, but something happens. And so that's what he did. It's what we call in Hebrew, a ba'alma, right? It's not a ga'ula, it's like a little bit of pakita ba'alma. And the Poles, of course, hoped that one day he'll add to it and make a real Poland, but it never happened. Skipping over all the uh, un- inessential stuff, eventually Napoleon was defeated, and the countries of Europe got together at the Congress of Vienna in 1814 1815. Let's go to the next one. This means that you have here what happens every 100 years or so in history, roughly, in which all the states get together to redraw the maps of Europe, and that becomes international law because all the states agree it is. Does anybody know when the last time we had such a conference, international conference to redraw and set so a map of, of, of Europe, when? You all forgot Helsinki in the 1970s. I promise you, that's what it was about. Russia wanted that you say this is Poland and this is Lithuania and it's all part of Russia and this is this and this and now everybody agrees it's all international law, right? Uh, I hope to talk about that this winter, 1976. But nevertheless, that, that's exactly what it's about. You want to nail down your gains, as it were. You see, and so in the Congress of Vienna which is a very interesting process all these rulers and cynical statesmen got together to redraw the map of Europe hopefully in such a way that will make sense what's shot in such a way to make sense the necessary needs of each country to the degree possible will be satisfied because a wise lawyer will say this deal's not going to hold unless what both sides feel that they can walk away with it if you have a winner take all you have a, a, a you know endless resentment. The other one's going to want to go back. So this is what's called statesmanship: how you make the other one feel sufficiently satisfied. You know nobody feels great; everybody feels okay. And so for the first time, the Polish question has to be discussed and reviewed by all the nations of Europe, including England and France, because they're part of the powers. That's the Castlereagh and the Duke of Wellington. There were big uh, English and French statesmen there. to be clear some countries carved up Poland, the others didn't want it, specifically the three blind mice, you know, Russia, Austria, Prussia. England France didn't want that to happen. And now you're getting together to redraw the map of Europe in a way that everybody will agree. So you can't simply say, well, we did it, and that's it, and all the rest of it, because then you leave a festering sewer. And believe you me, the Russians and the Prussians and the Austria wanted that their gains should be recognized in international law, so the question is what price did they pay for that? That's what it all boils down to, uh, because they had condemned the partition in the 18th century. By this time, it wasn't politically correct for Prussia, Austria, and Russia to simply say we, we committed rape codes we could we got away with it and, 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 and too darn big. Since the Congress of Vienna proclaimed itself a Christian and a legitimist legitimate assembly bent on righting the sacrilegious wrongs that had been perpetrated by the atheistic French Revolution, right, and by Napoleon, nobody could justify, as I told you a minute ago, that the Poles, a long-time and well-known people of Europe, simply disappeared off the map, okay? On what basis, for example, could Russia justify ruling the Poles against their will and getting angry at them if the Poles, resu- if the Poles revolted, which they did every once in a while? Naturally they did, because you took them over, you had no right to do it. Even a dictatorship needs a narrative. It's funny, Read St- Hitler didn't care so much. Stalin. Always been over there with a major liar, and always was justified, get it? Why are we taking over this country? The workers want us here, you see? Uh, the minorities are asking the Soviet Union to liberate them. We're taking over Eastern Poland to liberate the Ukrainians. I mean, you're always looking for a narrative that makes it justify, instead of what it really is, which is, okay? Hitler was a behemoth, so he simply said we take it because we need it. You understand? I mean, you know, but I want to tell you something. Look how dumb he was. He only needed zillions of people, and Stalin won over zillions of people, I'm sorry to say, right, including some of your relatives, <laughs> OK? Um, because he was these kind of in there. So had he justified wiping out Poland? On the other hand, the three empires were determined to hold on to what they had, OK? So he's not going to let go of Galicia, of the Austrian part. He's not going to let go of the Russian part. He's not going to let go of the Prussian part. So how are you going to work all this out? This was one of the challenges. One of the big challenges in the Congress of Vienna—it's not the whole map, of Europe, but Europe is important. To look of it. Here's where it gets complicated. Wise statesmen realized that there actually were security needs for the three empires wanting to hold on to these lands. Let me put it this way: um, There's Metternich, there's Castlereagh, there's the Duke of Wellington. These are famous uh, European statesmen of yesteryear. Uh, Russia needs a buffer territory, so they need the Ukraine and all that, because somebody will invade them. How come Napoleon was beat? Because he had to start all the way back. See? How come Hitler was beat? Because he had to start so far back. Kind of makes sense. If you're Germany, same thing. You need buffer area. If you're, you, you, you see what I'm saying? Notice there really is a national security uh, needs. You have to recognize there. This is a problem you have in the international situation today, today. Um, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, for example are now three independent states to kick the Russians out. But they're right next to Russia, and they're joining, they're joining NATO. How is Russia ever going to make up with that? You, know, you see what I'm saying? It's too much against their national security interest for them to do this. So why did America want to do that? Like, What do we get that we have US Air Force personnel in Estonia, 20 miles away from Leningrad? Is, is that why statesmanship? You know who makes this argument, Pat Buchanan. Nobody wants to hear it. You know, what I'm saying? it's an old business which says you can't go and push too hard. So Putin, somewhere on his agenda, not low, has got to be to get the Americans out of Estonia and somehow reassert Russian, you know, thing over there. If they don't, if they don't rule them like they did once upon a time, they want at least make it and nobody else should be a threat to them. I'm just trying to point out to you, states have. Certain fundamental security problems, and they have to be addressed. Believe you me, this lies at the very heart, does it not, of the Arab-Israeli conflict? Mm-hmm. You see, they say, "Give us back everything." Israel said, "What about our security?" So it depends on the president, you know. And then the Arabs say, "I guess what about the Palestinian security?" <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's 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 tri- it's tricky. Um, so as I said before. These statesmen were wise and cold, meaning calculating. As I said before, let's go to the next one. Russia doesn't want to start the invasion here. Russia says, let's hold a Russia here, so they'll start too far back, and they won't be able to get to Moscow. Kind of makes sense. I mean, go to the next one. Isn't that why Hitler and Napoleon were not able to conquer Russia? Because they started too far back. So by the time they get to Moscow, it's a winter. If they'd be up close, starting from the edge of Ukraine, it's not that far away. So you hear where Russia's coming from. Um, look, at, look at Prussia. It's the armpit, as they call it. Here's Prussia like that. Poland sticks into it like that. They can't afford, from the national security point of view, to have a, a potentially hostile power coming right, as I'm pointing over here, right in the, between the East Prussia and Silesia and go right into Berlin, which is over there. Can't have that. So how do you expect? To have a secure European peace. If you don't acknowledge these fundamental, what shall I say, survival realities. A wise statesman seeking long term peace takes into account the genuine needs of states. And that's, as I said, why Castlereagh, you know what Kissinger wrote his uh, PhD dissertation on Castlereagh. Get it? Because he wanted to know how did they make a peace that lasted 100 years? It was cynical, it was this, but it worked. So it's just interesting. On the other hand, it wasn't right to simply eliminate a live nation with millions of people, I'm talking about the Poles. So a certain fig leaf was created to justify the realpolitik. Poland, quote unquote, was to continue to exist, but as an independent part of Russia. An independent part of Prussia. Not really, but officially. Okay? The King of Prussia would not take over Poland. He would rule part of Poland as the Grand Duke of Posen. The Tsar of Russia would rule something called the Kingdom of Poland which was created by the Congress of Vienna, which is the small central part of Poland, around Warsaw and Lublin, which is like Poland after the second partition. And this is what the map looks like for 100 years, from 1815 to 1915, right? Uh, Here's Russia, here's Prussia. This part belongs to Prussia, it's called the Grand Duchy of Posen. It's Polish, but now it's under Prussia, and this part is called Congress Poland. You'll see that sometimes in your writings. the, the, the shtickle of Poland that was created as a semi-independent entity under the control of the Tsar of Russia by the Congress of Vienna. So it's called Congress Poland. I hope I haven't uh, confused you, but if I have, that's good too. Now, um, this you could justify the public opinion. We didn't destroy Poland. I mean, all this stuff new Russia took it. It was Ukrainians anyway. Uh, Lithuanians. Eh. Uh, there's still Poland, sort of, but it's not a Poland that could ever threaten Russia, like I told you before. That's what Putin would like. He would like a, an Estonia, a Lithuania, and all that, which is part of Russia, but wasn't. Knows you can rule yourselves, but we have the army there and that sort of business. Now, theoretically, and only theoretically, it could work. Agreed. I mean, uh, Roosevelt wanted this at the end of World War II. He said to Stalin, "Listen, let Poland be free, but we won't have any army there. The Russian army can be, you know, there. You know what I mean?" So nobody can attack you. But don't force all the Poles to become communists. They don't want to do that. Of course, Stalin said no. This would happen anyway way back then. Um, now, the problem is that these countries are too cynical, and they didn't want this to really happen. So let's move to the next one. The King of Prussia has no intention of allowing a whole bunch of Polacks to be part of his kingdom. And uh, therefore, it's going to be, uh, how shall I put it? I mean, he's a German-German. So basically, the only civilized people are Germans. So therefore, the only thing to do with all these people is turn them into Germans. So the only thing to do is tear up all their Polish books, you know, close down all their Polish schools, uh, to the degree possible get rid of their Polish churches, uh, turn them into German Germans. Uh, and that's what he's going to try to do. That was cheating, but guess what? Nobody. it wasn't the United Nations, it wasn't the CNN. So that's what the Prussians ended up doing for the next 100 years. To the degree that they could, they tried to Germanize this part of Poland, uh, uh, what they call the province of Posen. Um, You'd be surprised, many of you, I'm sure, I mean, I don't know, individually, uh, have parents that come from that area, Um, and same thing with the Tsar of Russia. Well, he was a little bit different. He was a weirdo, and so he had mood swings, uh, probably induced by the guilt that he murdered his father, but you can't tell for sure. Uh, This is Russia, you know. Well, listen, his mother, his grandmother, Catherine the Great, killed her husband. Mm-hmm. You know, this is how it goes over there. So um, they call it Tuesday. <laughs> so anyhow, wait a minute. Hold on. His best friend, or one of his best friends, was Prince Charterski, a Polish nobleman. And so he kind of was willing to make it happen if it would work and one hurt against Russia. So he was like this and that. The Prussians were definitely running right back. He is not ready, He's not, he doesn't want to try to do what I just told you. Go into Poland, take 10 million people, close down the Polish schools, tear up the Polish books, burn all the Polish stuff, and, bring, and try to make everybody speak Russian and all that. Anyway, he, he, says, he says, as long as they keep their nose clean, it's okay with me. The, there, was, there was in central Poland under him for uh, 10 years, a uh, Polish army, uh, you know, under his overall, con- a Polish government, a Polish administration. Polish schools, universities, you, know, you can have your own little thing as long as you don't get too uppity. Um, Austria didn't even bother. They're no so reactionary, they say we're here, we're controlling. <laughs> okay. Now, so that means that for the next century, that was what you and I called the 1800s, Poland was under three empires. There was no Poland. Each treated the Poles hostilely, but differently. Prussia simply t- cheated and tried to Germanize everybody in Poznan using various carrot and stick tricks. Two-thirds of Poznan province was Polish, the rest Germans and Jews. So if you went to 1914, 100 years later, it's still 60% of the population and more are really Polish. And this was a big problem in German politics. Because otherwise, besides that, told Germany is German. So why don't they let go of it? No, you can't let go of this. It's our border province, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, the anti-Polish laws naturally aroused Polish antipathy. And over the next century, surprise, surprise, the Poles stubbornly refused to Germanize. So all during the reign of this guy, and then this guy, and this guy, you always have what you call in German politics the Polish problem, which means the Poles are the problems opposing. It's not really a Polish province. You had no business taking them over, but that's what happened. Now, uh, what about the Jews? That's what we're kind of interested over here. Very interesting. If you're a Jew living in that part of Germany, and there were a lot You live in Posen, you live in Lezno, you live in Torn, these places in eastern, they're not really German Jews, are they? Get it? Not really German, but they're in the process of Germanizing. These are Polish Jews, but over the course of the 1800s, the Jews Germanized. because that way to get treated better by the authorities. See, if you're Polish, this is your culture, and so you're willing to make sacrifices on behalf of that. If you're Jewish, first of all, you probably spoke Yiddish anyway. Okay. Second of all, you're not a Polish patriot necessarily that you give up all your stuff, If it's now under Germany, so you give up. Why did they? Why were they Polish before? Because the Poles were ruling. What about now? The Germans are ruling, and so uh, the Polish Jews in the province of Posen. Fifty, I don't know how many thousands, uh, Germanized. Okay, um, and so they became Yekkes. But the Eastern European Yekkes—they're a little different than the other German Jews. In the beginning, at the very beginning, when this process, they didn't know what's going to happen. Like you and I have 2020 hindsight. And they didn't know should they be Polish or German. So in the province of Posen, in the city of Posen, which was a fairly large Jewish community, when the question came at the very beginning, 1813, 1814, just when all this changes were happening, so uh, the big, you know, half the community said we should get a German-speaking rabbi, a modern and the Prussians will like that. They'll say, oh no, the Poles will come back tomorrow and they'll take vengeance. And anyway, we went old-fashioned Polish-speaking. Uh, Rabbi, with uh, who speaks uh, Alakini and all the rest, of you know, like, like we're used to. And The compromise candidate was Rabbi Beger because uh, he was German, but very old-fashioned. Therefore, he's like Polish. And uh, I'm serious. There were huge, there were huge uh, fights in the community over all this, and uh, he had by no means had an easy time imposing. But that's for another occasion. Uh, but over the course of time. 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, 50s, the Jews Prussianized. They did. Though they were more Jewish than other Prussian Jews. OK? Uh, to give you an example, what I'm talking about, the original Sheriff Israel in Baltimore, Maryland, Glen show was composed of two minions that came together to form a common congregation. One was a South German minion from Bavaria, the Strauss brothers, and another one was a Posen minion. And, uh, one used the South German sitter, Rettelheim. And the other were German Jews, but they were Posen. I'm, I'm not sure. I think Jeffrey Cohns, the other Jeff Cohns family from there, I could be wrong. And different. they used a Polish sitter. You understand? And if you went to US newspapers long ago, they said it's a Polish minion. It's a German Jews, but they're from Posen. You get it? So it was a, a complicated in that way. And a lot of your 19th century German Jewish intellectuals are really not German, they're Posen. They're Polish. His uh, Jastrow is uh, the famous uh, Orthodox historian in Berliner. There's Gratz. There's Friedlander who headed the uh, Jewish College in London. This is the super ultra Reform rabbi, Holheim. Not really German. <laughs> but they're German, meaning now they speak German. They went to German schools, even German universities. They reinvented themselves, and, and uh, that's what happened. Overall, they Germanized with most becoming not from, because that's what happens with German Jews, not all. Uh, as I said before, Rabbi Keith Eger, who was a rabbi there for 20 some years, had a terrible time trying to deal with all these Balabatum who were in the process of Germanizing and becoming less from and they're always trying to clip his wings and he's always having fights with them and all the rest of it, and he's old school, obviously, and there was uh, a cultural chaos because where are we going with this? Uh, you know, are, are we Polish? Are we loyal to our ancestral traditions as old fashioned Ash- Ashkenazi Jews? Are we, to- are we in the middle? What's, what, what, what's going on? Uh, why did Yiddishkeit take such a hit in this part of Poland? The answer most people, and I would agree, is that there's one unique aspect of this part of Poland, which makes it very different than the other parts of Poland in the 1800s. No Hasidism. Why? Because Hasidism was spreading into Poland in the early 1800s. But when Prussia came in, they went allowed no whatever, you know, the Prussia, the police state, and that's it. And wherever you don't have Hasidism in the 19th century, the Yiddish card is weak. Because the countervailing forces are very powerful. And you don't have uh, the kind of crazy passion that they bring to it, which is the countervailing force, right? You don't have to be Hasidic to be from in Poland in the 19th century, you just need them around you. <laughs> you get it? So uh, you don't have an imposing whatsoever. It's very interesting in this regard. But we don't have time to go to this any farther. Now I want to move to the other part of Poland, Galicia. If you're a Galicianer, do not raise your hand. He says, now, uh, which which fell to Austria long before. Galicia had been in Austria since 1772, the first partition of Poland. That's a fairly sized, large province. Um, And uh, basically, Galicia is very interesting because they had a gigantic Jewish population. Look at the numbers. Look at those numbers. 200,000, eventually almost a million over the course of course a century, a lot of a baby boom. Agreed? In that province, uh, mostly in the east. Uh, so the Galicia is size is a big factor, numerically. Second of all, let's go to the next one. Galicia is really two zones. This part, the left side is Polish-Polish, only Poles live there. This side, the bigger half on the right, as you see today, to this today's map, is not in Poland. Why? It's not Polish. The great majority of the population there was Ukrainian. In the 19th century, they used to call it Ruthenian, but it's uh, Ukrainians. There are some Polish landlords, noblemen, like back from the 1500s, that still rule the area. So you have, like, in Khmelnytsky's time, the Polish noblemen and the peasants who were slaves, uh, are Ukrainians, and you got the Jews. And that was the Mishagasa of the old Poland, which kind of worked once upon a time. But I want to remind you, the Jews, it worked for the Jews because they served the Polish noblemen in collecting the money and so forth and selling the booze to the Ukrainian peasants. It's it's not a good situation. You, You hear where I'm going with this, okay? So it depends which part of Galicia you're from. And I'm serious, if you tell me, my parents come from this part, I know who you are. If you tell me my parents come from this part, I also know who you are, but it's a different story. Okay, it's a different story. Now, um, the story of what happens in this province, which is large, I'll tell you again hundreds of thousands of Jews, okay, is the story of whoever's ruling Austria, the Austria, Austrian Empire. Well, it's three guys basically it's Joseph II, and it's Franz I, and Franz Josef. Uh, he was from 1792 to 1835. But they carried his policies forward, rigor mortis, until so 1848, that's a long time, it's uh, well over 50 years. And he was in, in office 68 years, so these rulers are there for a long time. So um, not only are there three separate rulers, but they represent three separate uh, sets of policies, okay? Now, um, under Joseph II, the first guy, he's what you call benevolent despot, meaning I know it's better for you even if it kills you. And that's really what it was. And second of all, he wanted, his idea is to make everybody in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which is 60 nationalities, all German, uh, including the Gypsies. Good luck. And they should all dress middle class and act the same. And hopefully, it should be Catholic. Okay, Hopefully. Now, um, you have the bureaucratic absolute state. As a conservative Republican will tell you, when the government gets in, the government is the problem. And that was certainly the case in the Austrian administration of Galicia. They really screwed things up. The bureaucratic absolutist state. His policy is unbelievably selfish. Uh, No Poles, no Jews, no Ukrainians, just Germanized subjects of the House of Habsburg. The past be damned. Look at the breathtaking arrogance of what we're talking about over here. I don't care about your ancestral traditions, your ways of eating, your clothing, your religious beliefs. All the other things. If you're Jewish, you have thousands of years of heritage. None of that matters. How do we make you useful to the state today? And everything else down the drain. It's it's unbelievable. And by the way, is it going to work? Uh, for the Poles, it's all about erasing Polish language and culture. German schools are set up everywhere by the imperial uh, administration. A German university is set up in Lemberg. Lemberg is the capital city of the eastern half. Okay. Uh, and the town is really Germanized. I'll tell you again, last summer I happened to be in Lemberg for a day. I, was my, I never been there before. I was not Lvov. they call now, Lviv, excuse me. The Poles call it Lviv. They'll shoot you if you say that. Lviv. And that's what the Ukrainians call. Now it's located in Ukraine. Uh, it's, 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 it looks like Vienna. And they say, yeah, that's right. They, they on purpose uh, you know, made the architecture look like Vienna. They want to make a German headquarters. You understand? Because they want to bring the hot. Look at this. If you're German, there's no question. The German culture. It's civilized. The Polish culture, backwards, barefoot peasants. It's actually not true. I showed you a little bit over here. Poles had universities and stuff like that way back when. It's not true. They, they have a culture. They have their literature. They have all the rest of it. It's not mine, but they have theirs. And the Germans didn't really have a. but that's how it was. And you were under their control. Uh, Polish resistance was crushed by, if I can use it, the Austrian KGB. Uh, for their own good, of course, you know, that's it, we're helping you out. Now, what about the Jews? Terrible. First of all, they screwed up the economy. The Austrians didn't know what they're doing. They're setting up the economic barriers to help themselves. You don't need a great brain to understand once upon a time there was this huge area of Poland, which was one economic zone, no customs, no tolls. So if you lived in Galicia, you traded with at least your own country which is the whole Ukraine, the whole Belarus, the whole Lithuania, Latvia, good for business. Do you follow what I'm saying? It's like if you live in the USA today. At least if you live in the country, you can make a business just selling in the 50 states. There are a lot of businesses that do not need to sell overseas. There are a lot of businesses that do need to do overseas. I get that. But there are a lot that don't. And believe me, if you set up a franchise and you have it in all the 50 states, you're doing pretty good. Okay? So once upon a time, the Jews in Galicia were prosperous for a couple hundred years. They're prosperous because there are a lot of trade opportunities, and under that screwball system with the nobles and the toll, and, you know, all the kind of mishmash they talked about, it kind of worked. And every Jew was hawking, and everybody was buying and selling all the time. But there's goods going everywhere, and it kind of works. You know, it's it's an argument for uh, what's the name, Frederick von Hayek? You know, the the the, the 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 raw market capitalist economy. However, right? I mean, imagine, right? The old. If this was your market. Before you go exporting, before you go exporting, right? If this is your market, and now it's not, cause the Austrians shaved this piece off, and they say we're putting custom tolls and tariffs, and we think the Jews are too much involved in the trade; they control the commerce too much, um, and naturally the Jews keep on the old patterns of trading. So then you're 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 violating the laws; you're smuggling. Smuggling. Yesterday you set up this new uh, you know uh, border post and all that. We we've been. S- selling down this road back and forth for, for centuries. You see what I'm saying? The, and the result is the introduction of terrible poverty, which becomes the characteristic of Galicia in general, and for the Jews in particular, down to the Second World War. I'll repeat, down to the Second World War. So here you have a case where the government brought into poverty. And it was terrible, because I mean starvation and uh, prostitution. What kind of terrible things that result from the from not having enough food? and uh, One of the things that Jews will do, obviously, is leave. And one of the places they will go in the 1800s in reaction or response to this induced poverty because of the backwards, uh, topsy-turvy economic policies set by these uh, doofuses, they'll go to a place called Hungary. And most of your Hungarian Jews are Galicianers who moved there in the 1800s to run away from the terrible economy in Galicia. You see, because Hungary, which is all part of the empire, but it's a separate province, didn't have those conditions. And so if you move to Hungary, you can make a store, you can set up a little business, uh, if you're lucky, you can do better. It's, it's, it's somewhat like the old Poland was once upon a time, because nobody ever divided Hungary up into ten zones like they did to Poland, you see? So the majority of Hungarian Jews are really Galicianians who moved there, uh, running away from uh, the bad conditions. In, in Galicia, set up by the Austrians. Uh, before that, by the way, it was the opposite. Before that, Poland, including Galicia, was the was the um, prosperous zone. There's a famous speech of the notable Yehuda uh, who was a Galicianer. He's born in Opta. and he was a rabbi in and he learned in Brody, and he was a rabbi in Yampol. These are all places in Galicia, and he eventually became the chief rabbi of Prague, which is all the way farther to the west. And he comes to Prague in 1755, and he says, I can't believe the poverty I see over here. <laughs> you know, The Jews and the others. I'm not used to this. I come from Galicia, where, where, you know, where first of all, everybody's probably prosperous, and second of all, everybody's very Tzedek-oriented, which is why you have, he says, spiritually, why you have the prosperity over there. Uh, I'm not used. The West is terrible. You know? The East is where it's at. But in the 1800s, it's the opposite, isn't that right? It's the opposite. So I'm just telling you, you have to know these sorts of things to understand what's going on in uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, the economy, in other words, was colonialist to help Austria. So you know, it's a, the, that means if you're part of this ever-growing Jew, remember the Jews m- went from 200,000 to uh, almost a million. Um, that sounds good, except that there's no food. You, you, you see what I'm saying, right? In other words, so you have five children, you have ten children, beyond the Pernosa, You see? Uh, now Joseph II, as I told you before, uh, thought the Jews were too dominant. But at the same time, he thinks they're economic negatives. So he drives them out of many fields, economically ruining thousands of families. No Jews can have inns, no Jews can have bars. On the other hand, I do want him to go in this area and one in that area. Had everything highly regulated. Religiously, he wants to radically westernize by force. jewelry, because there are too many rabbis, too much Talmud, and they look Hasidic, and all that kind of business. And so he brings in, this, what, I, what I'm going show you now is what I mentioned last summer, the ugly face of the Haskalah, because he brings in. A famous uh, um, friend of uh, Moses Mendelssohn was a bad guy, hertz Hamburg, And he says, I want you to convert all the Jews to ask all. Okay? okay? Uh, away from all this uh, crazy uh, Talmudism and all the rest of it. And so he has police power and he sets up a whole network of schools and you force your children to go there and you can't get married, you can't get married unless you memorize his book on religion and he's trying to end the Talmudic studies. And all the sorts of things that are in there, naturally it's provoked passive resistance and other from the Jewish communities. He sets up in Lemberg a teacher's academy so he can teach there because otherwise you have all these teachers have to be brought in from Bohemia and the West. And it was a terrible situation because the Jews didn't want it. But that doesn't mean it matter, okay? Um, as I said before, let's go to the next one. In 1787, this Humberger became supervisor of the German Jewish school system in Galicia assistant censor of Jewish books. That's one of the things he's into. He says, in order to stop the bad influence on uh, the Jews, uh, uh, get rid of the Jewish books like the Talmud and the Hasidic literature and all the rest of it, and don't allow any new ones let's destroy as many of the old ones as we can. I mean, this is how they want to reform, OK? Despite suspicion and opposition from the Jews, he embarked on a program of educational reform based on the model of the normal school, which is a teacher's uh, school in Germany. Uh, within four years, he founded 100 schools, including one for girls in Lemberg, and a patronizing letter. He tried to convince the Galician rabbis to cooperate with him. They want to teach a diktuk, the study of German instead of Yiddish, because everybody knows Yiddish is a corrupt form of German. Uh, I, it's a Jewish language. Do it right. Um, the introduction of grades according to ancient students, moral improvement. We all know the haters don't teach any morality. So he wants to teach it. Eh? Preparation for trade and craft the attention to the education of the poor. Throughout the years in which a German Jewish school existed, the opposition of the, and the communities and the population only intensified. Because this is the old thing, when you try to shove it down somebody's throat, you know what's going to happen. German Jewish teachers were regarded as outsiders and heretics who led the children astray, which they did actually, okay? Um, the teachers like Hamburg himself had to rely on the Austrian police to enforce demands of the school system by fines or other compulsory measures. So you see where it's going? By establishing a pedagogical seminary in Lemberg, he tried to create a reservoir of local teachers who would replace what we would call the Malamids and the Haderism to for an inde- indefinite period could serve assistance during their training. In 1793, he was ordered back to advise the central government legal matters concerning reorganiz- reorganization of life in Bohemia. Meaning, they said, you're too hated, it's not working too well, and uh, let's go and try to uh, deal with Bohemia, where, where there is no Hasidism, where the Yiddishkeit is weaker, Czech, the Czech Republic. Right? That's the Czech Republic. The Yiddishkeit was weaker. And he wrote a memorandum on the moral and political improvement of the Israelites, basis for the pattern. He attacked the rabbis who were incorrigible, spoke of abolition of yeshivas, burning of the rabbinic books. During his stay of Man, to be chief censor and supervise all schools of the Habsburg Empire without success. So as I said before, this is the Haskalah gone wild account of steroids, and the evil sense. Now, uh, and that's if you're a God's honor, that's what happens. And ain't the old kingdom of Poland anymore with what we could call benign neglect, uh, because he sees it as um, malign neglect, not, not something that is bad, just two different uh, appreciations of the reality. What is the main response to these efforts to reform Judaism? The intense, quick spread of Hasidism. That's what happens. Okay, that's exactly what happened in 1780s, 1790s. Because if you see this, you push me, I'll push back. The best way you can push back in those days, come a Hasidic. because then you're ultra, ultra, you see? Galicia becomes overwhelmingly chassidic. This is how it happened. And chassidism becomes variantly anti-musculic. You can understand it. So you have two forces. So if you're at Galicia, it's a battleground of ideologies, chassidism on the one hand, and the Haskell on the other. Okay? This is a very characteristic of, of Galicia. The next era, uh, because Joseph II died after 10 years, lasts a long time under Franz I, 1792 to 1835. And like I say, give it another 15 years because his son was an imbecile. He was a, a mentally ill. And so they, they, they just, the state ran on his advisors, you know, they kept up the old policies. Uh, so the Kaiser was anti Semitic. Uh, but he was a reactionary because now the French Revolution scared everybody. So ironically, he doesn't want to suppress the Hasidim too much. Does that make sense? If you're a political reactionary, why do you not want to bother the Hasidim too much? They're not a political threat. If you have the Haskalah, they might start reading books about the French Revolution. People might start thinking of their own. If you're Hasidic, you go to a You know, If you read a Safer, it's about the next world. He, that's not a threat to the state, you understand? It's not a threat to the state. He has his hands full, by the way, with the polls, okay? See, he was not a nice guy, but from purely Machiavellian purposes, he's not so quick to suppress the Orthodox. And the Hasidim realized this and they learned how to work this system. Boy, did they learn how to work this system. But uh, one of the aspects of Hasidists, down till today, let me put it this way. Did they get Trump to give the God pardon the other day? Yes or no? Rubashkin. They know how to work, it. somebody got the Trump, they know how to work the system. That's been, no, no, that's been a, I'm serious, that's been a characteristic of Hasidus since day one. Because they grew up in a hard school, and you have Darwin, uh, survival of the fittest. And if you want to maintain your identity in a hostile Austria, in a hostile Russia, you better learn to operate successfully within the boundaries of the system. So you always appeal to their higher interest, you understand? Okay. now, uh, anyhow, three groups of Jews appear in the 1800s, therefore, in Galicia, which makes it a very interesting place for historians to study. You have the Hasidic masses, because that's what happens. uh, The rove Hamon Am, especially in the small shtetls and all that, uh, all go Hasidic. You have the Maskilim, who are a very tiny group and live mainly in the cities. Uh, and they want to do what? They want to reform Judaism, if I can use that term. Not the way the German Jews did it with their reform Judaism, but in their own way. They want to change the emphasis on Judaism and they want a Hebrew culture, and they don't like the way the Orthodox and the Hasidic are. And you have a third group who just want to assimilate. They're Germanizers. And they buddy up to the local Austrian officials. So you see this over and over again in the 19th century in Galicia, you have a small town. Yeah, three families that aren't from. Um, they, they and their daughter uh, have a German education. She plays the piano. It's a a little uh, village. You're the uh, ten Austrian officials that are there to administer the place. Who you talk to? The Poles don't speak German, and they're barefoot. You know what I mean? Who you talk to? You end up. Going to the Jews' house all the time, not good for the girls, not good for the, you know, that, that, that's what happens. But on the other hand, they get extra attention and they get privileges and things of this nature. This is how life was lived if you live under a corrupt system. Uh, there are three characteristic landmarks of the 19th century in Poland in Galicia. One, I told you once before about the original remember this? He lived in central Russia, I mean in the. In the the Russian Empire, and uh, he had a Moser bumped off and they couldn't pin it on him exactly. This is the time of Nicholas, a, a, a Jew who was informing Messira to the uh, Russians on something or other. Let's put it this way. One day two people went fishing in a river in the winter and they found the guy at the bottom put chains at the bottom of the thing. It was a Jewish guy that nobody had liked. So you put two and two together. And this happened all the time. It's an old Jewish thing that goes away back when in Talmud. And it's one of the rare cases of extrajudicial uh, punishment. We just finished Parshish Pinchas, did we not? And Parshish Pinchas is talking about a guy who took the law into his own hands. And uh, I won't say that Jews over the century took the law into their hands, but there's always exception for the Moser. And uh, I think I told you this in the past. There's a famous um, document that in Lucina in Spain in the golden age of Spain in the ten hundreds uh, in the Muslim times Andalusia they stoned a Moser to death in the shul on Yom Kippur before Kol Nidre okay so meaning uh, you don't commit treason against your own and you don't inform them the others because that's like you know you give everything away so anyway for some reason or other czar of russia got fixated on this and he decided to really investigate this and everybody lied and all the rest of it. And by the time it's over, I, I did this once Yeah, you know, I guess I'm happy to see people remember. remember. Uh, <laughs> I can, I can recycle it. You know, the, uh, I think I did it for my mom. Maybe but anyhow, uh, there's, there's, the, the leading Hasidic Rebbe in Russia, the original Rebbe, Rebbe, he was the leading Hasidic. He lived in a palace, all the rest of it. And he was the one, but they couldn't exactly get the goods on him. You know, uh, I'll tell you again. The Russian government put a lot of legal resources into all this, and when the trail was getting hot, uh, so he was smuggled over the border into Austria, into Galicia, and uh, and they found him a new identity, you know, and they just bribed everybody right and left. And by the time it's over, he was he was a native of Galicia. By the time it's over, he was born in Galicia, you know, and they had the judge swear to it and all the rest of it. And uh, because he was now a citizen of Galicia, and he had so and so much money, because the Hasidim gave money, he was able to buy an estate and become a nobleman. And once you're a nobleman, you can't be extradited. You understand? So uh, the point is, in order to make all this happen, the Hasidim had to learn how to work the system internationally. So how do you prevent the Russians from extraditing somebody over the border? You got to get to Metternich. How do you get to Metternich? That's a good one. How do you do it? Got to get to Rothschild. How do you get to Rothschild? Rabbi Meisel's from Krakow and Warsaw is a friend of Rothschild. Rabbi Meisel's is a Misnaget. You get to somebody who's get it worked. It really happened. So I'll tell you again, you cannot survive in a hostile environment unless you learn the tricks of the trade. That's all. Uh, in Eastern Europe, nice guys finish list. That's how it goes. I mean, not to, not to put too fine a point on it, what kind of Jews survived in World War II? Right? What kind of Jews survived in a concentration camp? A nicey-nice person? They went down one, two, three. You know that. Agreed? What kind of kid? Survived in, in World War II. You learn to steal, you learn to cheat, it's, 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 it's what it is. Are you putting a, a blame with that? It's, 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 it's unnecessary. Uh, lots of kids, after war was over, you know, would come place and steal for long until, until they, they normal down. So this is, you know, you, you just have to understand this. A second characteristic story uh, is the story of Shear and the uh, Tarnabal, where the Hasidim, I'm sorry, the Maskilim, got their candidate in to be the chief rabbi of a famous community, Tarnapol. Very well-known place in uh, 15,000 Jews in Eastern uh, Galicia. This is, uh, he's the leader of the Maskilim, uh, Joseph Pearl. He writes all these famous anti-Hasidic books, uh, which are brilliant, but nobody read them because the Hasidim bought all the copies. <laughs> uh, that's what they used to do. That's very smart, right? They have all the copies, like one survives, you know? and. Uh, uh, and he's always being in the Austrian government, writing him letters, you know, you should suppress the Hasinimov. And he wanted a guy like him that he admires to be to be the uh, Rov, the Av in Tarnopol. And he got the leading Moscow, uh, Shmuel Yehuda Rappaport, who was a big historian, who uh, was but it was a big Moscow and he got him, the Austrians made it that he got elected. But then the chassid and the elders in town made his life so miserable. They put pitch and tar in his uh, rabbinical chair and broke his windows and all this kind of stuff. So he got out of there, baby. And uh, wait a minute. And, 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 and what's the result? Um, the word was out. Uh, you're not going to be a rav in of uh, a Kahila in Galicia if you're like one of these uh, modern type guys. See? And he keeps saying, "I'm not modern." All that, you know. But it wasn't true. And uh, 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 this is a whole long discussion. I'm going to talk about this somewhere else soon. But uh, let's put it this way. It's a marker. Uh, what is a rabbi? In Germany, they solved that problem by creating reform rabbis. And those that didn't like that, solved the problem by creating conservative rabbis. Are you going to have a conservative rabbi in Galicia? We have a reform rabbi in Galicia. We have a masculine rabbi in Galicia. The answer is no. <laughs> Not if you live in a community in Eastern Galicia where most of the people are like, you know, either Hasidic or Misnagdic or things of this nature. Even though he was a charismatic and dynamic type guy, he ended up having to leave after a year or two. Went to Prague. When he went to Prague, that was a city that was so far gone that he was considered on the extreme right. You know what I mean? So he felt more uh, comfortable. By the way, the guy that came after, just to give you an idea what I'm talking about, Rappaport was the most famous name once upon a time. Today you never heard of him. He wrote very famous biographies. He founded the modern Jewish history, you might even say, the, the musculic tradition of modern Jewish history in the very early 1800s. He was fascinated by these kinds of uh, historic topics. Um, in all the books, they talk about him all the time, bracket him with Sunds and Rappaport and, uh, and all that. And um, he knew how to learn, but that's not where his passion was, his passion was Jewish history. So I'm, I'm talking about new models now. This didn't exist once upon a time. For 17 years afterwards, there was no rabbi because they were afraid of fights. After 17 years, they picked a guy who was a very quiet rabbi and didn't talk to anybody and just learned with four or five guys and you know pasuk and old old school and uh, really you know did a shabbos a old speech and had nothing to do with anybody and he wrote one book and then he died. But the one book was the Michas Chinuch, so it took off. <laughs> so today nobody's heard a rabbi before everybody's heard his but nobody knows who the rabbi was. They show babad, you know, it's, a, it's funny how these things work. But it, what, what was it saying? You see, say, if you're going to be a Roman Galicia, you better be like that type. Um, beg pardon? The, previous, the, previous line, who was the guy in the middle? Go back one. They're both the same. This and him, is a uh, Shlomo Shlom you the rabbi I word. I yeah, I mean, he, he, he looks ultra-Orthodox. Right? There's a lot to talk about, but now's not the time for that. I'm just trying to give a general uh, business. By the way, same thing happened with the next guy, Demaritschaius, who uh, was able to get into Orthodoxy. <laughs> but in his time, he was also big into Jewish history. He was considered a Moscow, and when he went to different towns, they threw him out same way. Fortunately, his family was millionaires, so they owned the city, so he could be the, the city he owned, Tzalkiev. But when he tried to be in college and other places, that didn't work. Now, incidentally, both of these guys, Shir and the Marat got letters backing them from the chassam sofer. So in the yeshiva type world, that would work. If you got a letter from Rabbi Yashev, they'll say, OK. But it's the Hasidim, and <laughs> they don't care about that. You <laughs> get it? I know what I see, and therefore I'm breaking the windows. See? And they wrote a scary list plays about it. Anyway, whatever. Uh, the third example is when they when the Maskilim in Lemberg, which is a big community, actually pushed in a Mamasha Reform Rabbi, a Reform Reform Rabbi from Germany named Kohn. So they poisoned him. It was a murder. Okay? Here's the book about it a from two, a few years ago. Uh, Abraham Kohn. They threw, I don't know, the rat poison in the soup or something like It was terrible. You know, The whole family, him and his family, ate lunch and they all died. Something like that. And they can never pin the crime. What is this? This is Galicia. This is Poland. What is this? No, no. What does this bespeak? It ain't the old world anymore. You know, it's, it's the new crazy Mishagahs where extremes are coming in there, and you have these clashes. And the government's trying to shove this down the throat, and they're trying to nothing's normal, nothing's natural. Okay, yeah, okay. And uh, <laughs> tell me what you really think. Yeah. now. Uh, meanwhile, in Eastern Galicia, where most of the Jews live, a great tension is being played out between three groups. Listen, I didn't invent, this. this is Eastern Europe, so we're talking about Eastern Europe. This is the way it goes, it's, it's complicated. You have the Poles, but they're in the noblemen. You have the Ukrainians who are the peasantry, still subject to slavery. And then you have the Austrians who monopolize all the political power. they are the, uh, the, the police, the, the, the administrators, uh, the the, prisoner, the, uh, the prison wardens, and all this kind of stuff. And then, of course, you got the Jews, okay? And therefore, it's a crazy time to live there. The third era is that of uh, the Emperor Franz Josef. Let's go to the next oh yeah. By the way, it wasn't even hard um, when the Poles try to make an uprising against the Austrians in Eastern Galicia. I spoke of it a month ago. All the Austrians had to do was say to the peasants, "Kill them. You don't like them anyway." And they do. Look, they 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 bring in um, uh, what's it? Heads, and they get uh, money for it. No, no, no. It's a very smart way. The Austrians didn't have to fight anybody. It's, it's actually funny. The Poles say, We're going to have an uprising to save our national honor. Yeah, the five noblemen, but the million people under you <laughs> don't see it that way. And so the Polish nobles had to say to the Austrians, we call off the uprising, call off the peasants. You see? It shows that a nutty system that goes over there. Uh, but the third of is the next emperor, Francis This is when he was young, middle aged, and old. He's almost 70 years. He was an emperor for, for 68 years, a long time. And uh, let's put it this way. He's ruling, Valicia. it's in two phases, A and then B. The first phase is the first 20 years in which the old system still obtained uh, the Jews have the no rights, they're subject to police state, they're trying to Germanize them, uh, you know, all the old business that I was talking about. That's Francio de Vague. But then, in the late 1860s, because Austria suffered a couple defeats and wars, he found it necessary and advisable to cut two deals, which actually worked very well. Ausgleich, they call it. A big one with the, with the Hungarians and a small one with the Poles. And what he basically said was like this, don't make any rebellions, this, that, and the other, and I'll make it good for you. You will run your own country. Uh, I'll have the army. You know, you'll know, you agree on few, the foreign policy, the money, a few basic commonalities, uh, and you'll have everything else. So you would be the masters in your own house as long as you agree to be in my empire. And it was a good deal, and both took it, the Hungarians and the Poles. One of the reasons they took it was they're both minorities in their own country. So they're really cutting a deal to stick it to the nationalities that are under them. Does that make sense? It's a dirty deal. See, so if Hungarian. In the old big kingdom Hungary that once existed, most of the population is Romanians, Slovaks, Croats, this, that, and the other. So the Hungarians said, "But we want to be the master race in that kingdom." So Francis says, "Okay, I'll let you do that. In return, you'll be loyal to me, with the understanding: if you ever cheat me, I'll tell the others to go get you." Same thing in Poland, in Galicia, he told the Poles, the nobles, the big shots, he said, "I'll let you be the masters over here, but of course, if you do any deals, I'll let, I'll sick sic the others on you." He didn't have to say, that it was obvious. Now, what does that mean? Uh, it means that now, from 1867 to 1914, these last 40 years, is a golden age for the Poles and the Jews because the Austrians kind of pulled out and let the, the, the locals run the show. In addition to which, Franz Jose, by this time, had come to the conclusion. Very interestingly, the Jews are not a problem. <laughs> the Poles are a problem. The Ukrainians, the Hungarians, the Czechs, the Croats, the Slovenes, the Italians, the Romanians, right? Not the Jews. <laughs> they not a problem. You know why? They don't want their own country. You see what I'm saying? They just want Greta Garbo. <laughs> they just leave me alone. That's all they want to do. They're, and they to be very fine. And so he said to the Poles, I'll give you autonomy over there, but you have to emancipate the Jews. And the Pope said, I don't know about that. We don't want to do that. It's not the old system. He said, if you don't do it, I will. And so they had a whole bunch of debates in the Galician Parliament that he allowed. And they finally gave the Jews complete and total civil rights in 1868 in Poland, which means from the political point of view, from 1868 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, when some of your great-grandparents were around, right, great-great-grandparents, if they come from that part of the world, they so say, oh, the old days before the first world was Gvaldeck and Franz Josef and this, that, and the other, because from the political side of it, it's kind of true. The Poles had a good deal. Listen to what I'm saying. If you lived in the Prussian part, they tried to Germanize you. If you lived in the Russian part, they tried to Russify you. If you lived in Galicia, you could be as Polish as you want. You have Polish schools. Polish universities, Polish literature, Polish life was flourishing. You just had to be under Franz Josef. It's better that than being under Russia. You see what I'm saying? So they actually cut a very interesting deal. So in the second half of his reign, it got politically good for the Poles. Now, not for the Ukrainians, okay, but uh, for the Poles. So uh, and, and and this is when Franz Josef became very popular among the Jews after 1868. But what about the Ukrainians, the Ruthenians, as they call them over here, right? Here you have a permanent tension, and there's no good solution because of the hegemonic Poles. Because that's not a problem you could solve. If you live over in any part of the country, the two groups hate each other. You've been dominating us and enslaving us forever. Francia made them emancipate these peasants. And so the result was that they're no longer legally, like used to be a slave. But still, the Poles are the judges. The Poles are the sheriffs. You see the thing, right? The Poles are the cops or the police chiefs. And so it's not really a fair environment. I don't know if you paid attention the first night when we had that two minutes of that Ukrainian movie, Polish movie, and these guys in the bar, what are they complaining? They're complaining, in 1939 this is, the Poles are still sticking it to us. They're taking the churches away and turning Catholic, and they're doing all kind of bad things to the Ukraine. The Poles and Ukrainians hate each other historically. And the reason is because the Poles always Beat up on the ukrainians that's just how it goes who cares a million jews half a million jews are living in the middle of that i'll say it again a half a million jews are living smack in the middle of all that and so who does the jew favor which set of customers if the two want to kill each other where's the jew stand in all this it's not a very comfortable position to be in um so jews are in the middle which is the same thing in hungary um, in the King of Hungary, the Slovaks were persecuted. Well, what if you're a Jew, like my mother, living in Slovakia at that time for the First World War? Uh, what do you do? Do you side with the Hungarians? Do you side with the with the peasants? You know, wh- which way does it go? Uh, this is the worst kind of the gulls. When there are competing nationalities, comes the question. Each one demands that you support them, and whichever way the you goes is going to be wrong to somebody. And in a Ultimately, bad situation is bad to both. And that's the fate of Jews. This is why Zionism started in Austria-Hungary. Who's the one who started Zionism? Herzl and people like that. Because they're totally aware of the fact that wherever the Jews are, they're in the, in the wrong spot. The only way is to get out of here and have our own country. But we wouldn't have to do this kind of junk. Because otherwise, we're just existentially permanent going to be in a bad spot. It'll never get better. We need to move out of here and go, He's sensitive to this in a way that others aren't. So in 1870, 1914, as I said before, Galicia, in the sense of civil rights, is great for the Jews and for the Poles. That's why as I, in, in, in the Galicianer Schulz in, in the late 1800s, when they made a mission back for the emperor, they said for Franz Joseph and Shraga Feibel, which means, it's Franz Josef, the son of Franz Karl. It's not really his name. It's an endearment, you understand? In, in Russia, this was not the case. They hated the Zor. but he had, to say, he had to say it anyway, because if you didn't say a prayer for the government, somebody would tell you. Right? I think I told you the story, but hopefully you forgot. Then when the First World, War, First World War broke out later in 1914, so a delegation of rabbis from Hungary went to Josef and they said, we want you to know we were praying that you should win. And the emperor was 84 at the time said, let's cut the baloney. You know at this moment, a bunch of rabbis in Russia we're saying the same thing to the Tsar of Russia. And they said, but there's a difference? We beat it. <laughs> <laughs> so, but there's great poverty. As I said before, that they could fix, which leads, as I said before, to migrations, to Hungary, and then eventually to America. Lots of hunters, as you know, uh, moved to America. A lot went to Romania. Isn't that interesting? A lot of to Romania it was a very anti-Semitic country with a good economy. And so a lot of Galiciana Jews will move. That's why you find in Romania people named Friedman, you know, and uh, Weiss and uh, Schwartz. Uh, They're Galiciana Jews moving to try to to a place where they think they can make a living. Um, And there's great tension building up because the Ukrainians are slowly rising. They're acquiring their own national identity. And so you have two competing nationalities getting conscious of themselves. Suppose the Ukrainians, not good. Nowhere are Jewish rights respected in and of themselves. It's only can you support my group. So when the Jews got civil rights, they could elect their own people to parliament. There are areas where the majority of the, Jewish, of the population is Jewish. There are towns in Galicia where the majority is Jewish. So they could elect, in certain areas, Jewish members of the parliament. The first one was elected, look at this, was the son Shimon Sofer, the Krakorov. He the rabbi of Krakow. I'll say it again. And he was a member of the Austrian parliament from Galicia. But what did he do? Nothing. Because he's very conservative. And basically he said like this, I don't want any trouble with the polls. Whatever the polls do, that's so I vote for. Never made a speech, never done anything, you know? Whatever the polls do, that's over I vote for because I don't want any anti-Semitism at home. So the Jewish interest being represented. Now, one argument is yes, and the other argument is no. One is don't rock the boat, and this way if you ever need a favor, you can ask from them. This will be a permanent question down to the Holocaust. What's the proper way of the Jews doing politics in Poland? Should you be also loyal to the Poles and then ask them for favors? Or should you assert your Jewish national rights and be proud of being a Jew and alienate the Poles? When he died, this guy became the, uh, for many years the, the member of parliament, Joseph Samuel Bloch. Who was a well-known, I would say, modern Orthodox rabbi in Vienna. Uh, he was, you know, old Yeshiva guy. You know, very modern, and uh, he became famous for fighting against the blood libel. There was a famous priest who was a professor at the university of Prague. Rowling was his name, August Rowling, Catholic priest, and he said he's an expert in Judaism. And the Talmud says you should kill the children to use the blood for Pesach. It says so explicitly in the Talmud. And everybody knows that I'm telling the truth and the rabbi's afraid to admit it. And I don't know why all the other rabbis like fumfing and schmumping and all the rest of it. And this guy took the bull by the horns and he published the thing in public. He said, I say you're a public liar and I dare you to challenge me in court. In fact, I'm going to prove you can't even read a page of the Talmud itself without a translation. Your translation is no good. I'm going to be and from you in front of everybody. And I'm saying it out in public, and I dare you to sue me. So naturally, he had to sue him mm-hmm. you know, when you do it like that. And he said, I can't wait for the court to come, because I'm going to bust you in pieces. And all the Catholics said, well, you'll show him and all the rest of it. On the day of the trial, no show. No show. And so the guy, the guy was exiled by the Vatican to be a, a missionary in Tibet. This <laughs> is the truth <of> here. <laughs> uh, And he became a hero. Even, even though the others should have done it also. And therefore, so it's naturally uh, Josef Shmuel Blach, right? And, uh, and he, he, he had He had the Jewish Times of Austria. I mean, that was his newspaper. And he's not a Zionist, but he's a proud Jew. And therefore, how it work? When he runs for office, he gets elected and goes, let the Poles don't like him. Why the Poles don't like him? He says, I don't care about the Polish interests. I don't care about the Ukrainians. I'm a Jew. I represent the Jewish interests. Oh no, We don't like that. If the Jew is there, as they've always been as a help for us, that's one thing. If the Jews want their own independent identity, uh, this is not your country. But he says, but we're in the majority of the population. It's not your country. So you see these politic things represent a very complicated, I'm describing, I'm trying to describe, a Poland in its different parts They got a lot more complex as far as the Jews are concerned in the 19th century. So whereas everywhere else, things are moving to be better for the Jews, in Eastern Europe, it's not that way. It's much more complicated. Um, nowhere, as I said before, Jewish rights respected in, 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 in Galicia, except by the emperor. And he insists that if there's a government contract, the Jews have to get a proportional share, like we say today, the affirmative action, you know what I mean, the minority contracts. And if there's a railroad, which was the big employer over here, if the railroad is a big employer, the emperor insisted the Jews get, you know, if they're 10% of the workforce, they get 10% of the jobs and all, all that kind of business. And so if it was Austria until 1914, until 1918, uh, fair it was, but the emperor is the referee. You understand? He's the referee. So you have a tiny. you have to go to the Austrian government. Uh, it's complicated, what can I tell you? Okay, now to Russian Poland, the third part, because there was the Prussian part, the Austrian part, now the Russian Poland, which everything else. As I told you before, there is two parts. There is Poland-Poland, Congress-Poland, and then there's the old parts, which are no longer part of Poland. They're absorbed totally by Russia. Lithuania, Belarus, Ukraine over here, huge areas of Poland, the kingdom of Poland yesterday with gigantic Jewish populations. right? With gigantic Jewish populations. Uh, look at the next one. This line shows you, there is Congress-Poland. This whole part that I'm pointing with my pointer here is it used to be part of Poland. Look how much was left over. This is Ukraine, this is Belarus, this is Lithuania. A lot of you come from there. You see? That was no longer part of Poland. That's directly under Russia. It's annexed by Russia. That was the deal. And so there uh, you're subject to Russification. If you're living, for example, in Vilna, which is outside of the Congress of Poland, if you're living in Kiev, if you're living in Minsk, and uh, Volosh and hundreds of other places, Forget the Poles, baby. They're not in charge. It's the Tsar of Russia. Either you're going to be one of these real religious Jews that's going to try to resent, uh, 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 reject and resist Russification, or you're going to go along. If you're going to go along, you're not going to become Polish. What's the point? You don't get anything. become Russian. Now starts Russian Jewry. Do you get what I'm saying? There was no such thing ever. But now in the 1800s, you get Russian Jewry. What do I mean, Russian Jewry? The Jews of the provinces of Poland that were annexed by Russia and directly subject to Russian administration, not the Congress Poland, there you get the full business that if you want to get any rights, all the rest of it. As a Jew, you'll never get full rights. But if you want to get 10%, 20% rights, better pick up some Russian, go to Russian school, and all the rest of it. Incidentally, this whole area that I'm pointing to over here with this line and Poland, that's called the Pale of Settlement. If you're Jewish, you're only allowed to live there. Because Russia itself kept up the old policy, which is we want no Jews, Okay. Uh, Before Catherine the Great took over Poland, there were zero Jews in Russia, the famous law from long ago. They don't want it. They have the right. They don't want it. Jews killed Christ, you know, that kind of thing. That's really how they saw it. I mean, really, very religious. But now they took over Poland, so uh, you get get all this territory, but you also get a booby prize. You only get all the Jews, you know? And they didn't know what to do with all those Jews. It wasn't a small population. And by the way, it wasn't just Jews. It was Jewish Jews, the most the Jewish Jews in the world. Uh, Hasidism is rising. The yeshivaism is rising. Even the Haskalah, which is not a Russian thing, is rising. So it's a very vigorous Jewish uh, population. And they're in the millions. And they're growing. I showed you the numbers before in Galicia. You have similar numbers in Russia proper. The Jews are growing, growing, growing. Where is it going? What are we going to do with this group? They're bone in the throat, they're unassimilable, unless we learn how to assimilate them, obviously. And so, uh, as I said before, in the rest of Poland, those new areas, it's Russification. In Congress, Poland is more complicated, right? Because there the Russians said the Poles can run the show. Um, and so it all depends on who the czars are. Uh, let's go this one. If you're under these two guys, 1825, 1855, 1855, 1881. The policy of the Russian government is to try to assimilate the Jews. Let's encourage them to speak Russian. Let's encourage them to go to Russian public schools. Let's encourage them to go to Russian universities, and hopefully they'll convert along the way, which often happened. Okay? And anyway, they won't be so Jewish; they'll be more like the Russians. And their children will convert, like that, or their grandchildren, which is true. wasn't, wasn't a bit untrue about all that. And uh, let's try. This obviously put them in odds. With the religious Jews, with the yeshivas, the Chayters, the Rebbes, and all that, you know, the Hasidic, all the rest of it. But this is the Russian government; they're willing to do that. And the general policy was to absorb the Jewish population as much as possible. He was a real son of a gun. He's the one who, who took the children at the age of ten, kept them twenty-five years in the army. You've heard of that. Uh, he was a little bit better. Alexander II. I say a little bit better. You know, compared to the monster, you know, the the uh, a little bit better because he was a little bit better. It was a lot more assimilation in his time. Because people really thought, gee, we can really become Russians. And Alexander II looked like, I repeat, looked like he was eventually going to go liberal. Because he freed the slaves in Russia. The freed slaves in 1862. So uh, he did other things like that. And so maybe one day the Jews will get full rights also. Maybe. He even said, if you're rich or highly educated, maybe I'll let you live in Russia as an exception. There were some Jews who moved into Russia, Moscow, uh, St. Petersburg, places like that. If you're of the few, uh, so it looked like. You know, Russia takes a little bit longer than England, but similar catch-up to England. You know, and I know that was baloney. But I'm talking about how it looked at that time, and so the pressure is on the Jews, in Russia. What I keep coming back to the point: Russia means the old parts of Poland. They're not going to be reattached to Poland. So when I say Russia, I'm talking about. Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania, Latvia. That's what we're talking about all the time, all the time. You're you're subject to these uh, tensions and these uh, uh, pressures. Um, So for the Jews in the rest of Poland, if you want to assimilate, go Russian. But just like happened with Austria, the stupid czars ruined the economies of Lithuania, Belarus, and Ukraine, partially to stick it to the Jews. They're so crazy. There are new books out about this, by the way. A guy wrote a book not long ago about this. Uh, called New History to Shtetl. The Russian government introduced policies to crush the Jews in the countryside. Aye, you're killing the bees that produce the honey, but we're willing to do that. And so they introduced poverty and the abandoned uh, Shtetl, the poor Shtetl. When you look at photographs from 100 years ago, 120 years ago, it looks poor. And it was. If you looked at it 200 years ago, it would look rich. So why would a government do that? In Russia, you don't ask any questions. You understand? They're all about having control, and they viewed the Jews as a menace. The Russians were afraid of the Jews. Isn't that interesting? They said, the Jews are so smart, they'll take over everything if we let them. So they have a very, it's hard for people to understand that, and I'll tell you why. In this country, we're used to regular racism. Racism goes like this. These people, you know, who live in the inner city or here in the, the, you know, They're dumb. Uh, They're primitive. Uh, You know all the racist stuff. You know they couldn't make it on their own. Uh, Is a crime. You know what I'm saying? The family fall apart. That's where we're used to the racism over here. Now, here's a funny racism in Russia. These Jews. They're disgusting. They're low. If you don't watch out, they'll get all the A pluses. (laughs) If you don't watch out, they'll, 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 they'll buy up all the land. If you don't watch out, they'll take over all the stores. If you don't watch out, there'll be all the doctors and lawyers. If you don't watch out, they will be all the professors. It doesn't work. right, you know. I'm trying to show you what a cognitive dissonance Russian racism was. That they, on the one hand, want to treat the Jews like they're, uh, they write their inferior element, their primitive element, all the rest of it. But then when you scratch and you say, what? Oh, they're so smart, they'll take over everything. It's that oxymoronic, racist attitude is very typically Russian. They did not know what to do with the Jews. You see? They did not know. They would be much more comfortable if the Jews indeed were dumb, illiterate, barefoot, and primitive, and there were a certain type of peasantry. That the Russians are experts in. They've run many subject peoples, still do. What do you do with the Jews? <laughs> you see? What, what, what's the story over there? I can't let them into Russia property alone. loan everything. I can't let them go. So this is what happened. Under the first czars, they said, let's bring them to universities. The second Tsar said, oh my God, what do we do? Mm-hmm. And they said, no Jew can go to university. Three percent of the student body. Because otherwise, it's going to be terrible. That's the nutty business that makes up Russia. We all, are, we all understand this. Now, um... On the other hand, even with all the worst intentions in the world, um, let's go back Let's go back one. Yeah. If you're here, a Jew, a poor Jew, with a little bit of a brain, in the 1800s, if you set up a business, a factory here, you have the whole Russian market all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Because economically, If you're a shtickle capitalist, your economic possibilities are unlimited. And smart Jews, some Jews are good at business. That's what I've been told. He says, I've never met any, but I've been told. He says, some Jews will, in a ruthlessly capitalistic environment, do exactly that. Let's go forward. Here are two guys that, that own all the tea in China. Or be very specific, this is Visotsky. This is Brodsky. Vyshavsky owns all the tea. No, no, no. He was a firm guy who, by John D. Rockefeller-type capitalism, which was legal in the 19th century, killed the opposition, and then all the tea in Russia was made by him. So how rich was he? Okay. This is Brodsky. did it with the sugar. He's a Litvak. He's a Ukrainian. Okay. Doesn't matter. Because once you get the right thing, every how should I put it, you have all the Starbucks in Russia from the Atlantic to the Pacific. you know all the way. You have all the Starbucks, all the coffee beans, all, all that kind of business. It's unbelievable. It goes there. There were other guys that did it with the railroads, Polakov did it with the railroads uh, and, and, and and such. A, meaning with the worst intentions in the world, you've also created a environment in which the jews can do good by the way this guy's a famous story he was a little bit religious and so the Chavaz Chaim used to get money from him uh, naturally and uh, when he, one time he sh- and he even started a kollel, you know called Bratsky's kola and and, Velosh and, Yeshiva. and the Chavaz Chaim when he visited him to get money um so he showed him his last will and testament he said which was uh, drawn up in traditional jewish fashion the firstborn gets a pishnai it gets a double portion and this one gets this, and that one gets that, and the, the girls will get the money through the halachic way and all the rest of it. And all of his books, he's giving as a present to Voloshin Yeshiva, because everybody ever wrote a Safer to Dabrotsky, obviously. You hope to get 50 bucks, you know? And uh, and his money is divided like this, and the Chabad Chaim famously said, I guess, tear up the will and rewrite it. Give all the money to Yeshiva, give the books to your kids, because <laughs> Yeshiva doesn't need the, the books, and your kids don't need the money, you know? Um, as a famous business. But nevertheless, there, there, there rose in Tsarist Russia, in spite of all the terrible conditions, a whole class of Jews who were successful army contractors mm-hmm. uh, helped with the railroads, uh, built up these kind of businesses and all the rest of it. Lodge in Poland will arise as an important industrial center because these Jews, Hasidim, by the way, will set up textile factories. And you make all the buttons for Gans Russia. You make all the pants for Gans Russia. There used to be a town called Baltimore, Maryland where 100 years ago made all the straw hats for the whole America, do you know that? In this town, right? Made all the straw hats. So was that a, a whole of Jewish business? There are other things as well. Anyway, so this is the crazy 19th century. Now, the Russian government, as I told you before, had shifting policies towards the Jews. First, they tried to educate them and to become Russian in almost every way, or really every way. Count Uvarov, as I said before, tried to get them all in the college and universities and close down the yeshivas. But as I said before, they don't permit them outside, let's go to the next one, outside the pale Settlement, You have to live in here, so there's contradictory policies You're Russian, but you can't live in Russia. Uh, but then, in late 1800s, they go the opposite route, under Alexander III and Nicholas II. They say no Jew can live anywhere, and no Jew can be a doctor, and no Jew can, can go to college, and no Jew can uh, enter the professions, and no Jew can be over here because they're going to take over, you see? And so what are Jews supposed to do? They want the Jews to Russify, but they don't want to play any role in Russian life. So that's smart. Uh, Think of what I just said. I'm going to get you a Russian education, but you won't have any job. You know what you just did? You created a communist. You can't blame them. Or a revolutionary, or something like that, right? The dumbest thing in the world. You give somebody an education, and you deny them any opportunity. That's dumb. Don't give them an education. I said a 100 times, if the czars of Russia would have had any brains, which they didn't, they would have bankrolled all the Hasidic Rebbies. Mm-hmm. Give all the money to Lubavitch. No, you get it? Let them all spend all the time singing and all. Then they won't join the revolutionaries. But they couldn't, they couldn't see it that way, right? In the end, who killed the czar and his family? A, fi- a bunch of uh, uh, shooters with pistols. Led by a Jewish guy, you know, Goritsky, whatever, is his name, yeah. You know? Uh, so it was not very smart, but that's what they did. They weren't interested, we're not interested in these guys. We're interested in the Jews in Poland, in Congress Poland for tonight's lecture. And here the Tsars started by allowing a degree of autonomy. I told you for a genuinely Polish administration, Polish culture and everything. Under the first Tsar Alexander II, they kept their bargain more or less. But under the second Tsar, the Russians start to impinge on Polish autonomy, cheating which led the Poles, emotional Poles, to have an uprising, a stupid but emotionally understandable rebellion in 1830, the crushing of the rebellion was followed by a diminished autonomy and a creeping russification under the next two Tsars after 1860. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.